0: Good evening everyone. Good evening. I'm amazed um, in two respects this evening. First of all, um, in the absence of Richard Pete, who has gone down with a flu bug in the course of today, that all this technology seems currently to be working. <laughs> and secondly that so many people are interested in the Book of Common Prayer and so I'm really gratified and I hope I can do justice to what is an extraordinarily complex subject even though it only relates to just a book. The reason for doing this lecture this year is as most of you will know it is the 350th anniversary of the 1662 book of common prayer and it's also the 60th anniversary of the queen's accession so i thought that a lecture which tried to integrate the book the book which is the prime book of the church of england and has been since the reformation and uh, our own uh, beloved queen um, And kings and queens, as you'll hear later on, have been significant in the development of the Book of Common Prayer. So that seemed all entirely appropriate. I've got all sorts of things for you to take away with you. This evening it's going to be a feast of facts, of um, information of various kinds, of some literature, some music... Uh, We have a dramatic interlude in the middle. And above everything else, there are going to be dates. For those of you who wish that you were back at school studying history and having to know the dates of everything and putting them in the right order, this is just the occasion for you. So welcome everyone, welcome especially to any guests from other churches or Um, from outside the parish of Finchamstead and California. When we come to talk about the Book of Common Prayer, I will tend to focus mainly on the services that many of us are most familiar with, that is the service of Holy Communion and the services of morning and evening prayer, which, as many of you will know, are very similar. Uh, We're not going to spend too much time delving into... The words of the Book of Common Prayer, though necessarily I will refer to them from time to time. This is what we're going to do. We're going to have um, a little history lesson about the Book of Common Prayer. Then I'm going to turn to the state and its involvement with the book. Then, looking at the book and its impact in various different ways to ask the question well okay that's all very interesting but what now and then i'll try and draw it all together and since you would get extremely bored just listening to me talking for an hour or however long this will last um, i'm going to have some musical interludes as well so that you can so that i can draw breath and <coughs> and you can have a snack with a snack without having a snooze without feeling bad about it. If you've you've brought sandwiches with you, you can have a snack at any time. So, we start with the history of of the Book of Common Prayer, and, and I do need to warn you that this is the longest section. The other thing, though, that I can say is that it may seem that in the early years we're moving forward extremely slowly, What we need to do, in essence, is get from 1549 to 1662. From 1662 until now, the last 350 years, will take very little time at all. So if you're trying to measure how long is this history going on for, (coughs) it's not linear. So with all those warnings and uh, provisos... Uh, let's see where we start and as all good things start with we start with Henry
1: VIII.
0: I'm not going to make any reference at all to his six wives other than that one. <laughs> but why was, why did the Reformation in England take place? It took place for these reasons I think. First of all uh, because Henry VIII was Uh, a very strong individual, had definite ideas. But much of the Reformation, although it seemed to have to do with the Church, actually had more to do with politics. In particular, his concern to have a male heir. And you will know that the break with Rome came principally because the Pope, for various reasons, wouldn't annul Henry's marriage to Catherine of Aragon. There were other issues though too and they related to Henry's view of what a Christian king should be in his own kingdom. So there were were areas of debate with the Pope, the imposition of ecclesiastical law, uh, keeping Uh, the clergy out of the king's jails, all that kind of thing. Um, So the idea of the autonomy of the state was really important. Then there was just basic, plain economics. The church was extraordinarily rich and the king always needed money. That's why the monasteries were closed down, that's why the chantries were dissolved, because they had huge endowments. And finally, Henry fancied himself as a theologian. And what's really interesting, you may, you may know the phrase fidei, fidei, fidei Defensor, which means defender of the faith. It's on pretty much every coin that's <coughs> been issued in this country since, uh, not in full, but fid Def or FD. What is really fascinating is that, that Henry was given this title in 1521, by the Pope, and he was given the title for defending the Catholic Church. When he broke with Rome, he kept the title. That's just the kind of king he was. The king was extremely interested in theology, but he had his own take on it. And it's interesting how the theology seemed to fit the tenor of the times. The theology certainly fitted a break with Rome. It fitted when it suited Henry for there to be Bibles in English in the churches. But then as he got older, he got more and more concerned about the pace of reform. And Cranmer, who was archbishop at that time, had to tread very warily. And if you look look at it as, as as a progression Towards the latter part of Henry's reign, things went backwards. The six articles uh, enforced things that Cranmer was keen to get rid of. So that's where the Reformation started. Here is a timeline of some key dates for this (coughs) evening. Uh, You can see that we start in 1549, as I've already suggested, which is the first of the prayer books of Edward VI. There's another one following quickly in succession in 1552. Then you can see there's a big red cross. The prayer book was banned during Mary's reign when there was a full-scale return to uh, Catholicism. Elizabeth came to the throne in 1558, and in 1559 there was another prayer book. There was another one when James I came to the throne in 1604, though it wasn't a major change. In 1645, the prayer book was banned again, but for the last time during the Commonwealth years. Charles II was restored in 1660, and there was another new prayer book, the prayer book that is still used, the 1662 version. Along the bottom, you can see the kings and queens. Edward VI, Elizabeth I, James I, Charles I, and Charles II. Each of them had a part to play in the developing saga of the prayer book. You'll also see that I've shown 1637 as the year of the Scottish prayer book. The reasons for that will become evident, I hope, as we go along. And also, in 1928, the only serious attempt between 1662 and now to introduce a new and different prayer book. Um, And I will mention that later on too. So if you bear all those dates in mind, you won't go far wrong with what
1: follows.
0: (laughs) We've reached the prayer book of 1549, the first of the prayer books, the first of the books in English. Um, This started in 1544 when Henry was still on the throne. For some reason, he liked the litany in English. The litany is a whole series of prayers. Um, A lot of them, it turns out, are for the king. (laughs) Edward VI came to the throne, and the first thing that he did under protector uh, Somerset was to issue a set of injunctions. Uh, The injunctions that he issued were uh, really quite interesting. I have a copy of the injunctions, and um, it it tells us the sort of thing that the new king, who was an ardent Protestant, uh, what he had in mind... (coughs) Um, And and I'm not going to read the whole of the injunctions, you'll be pleased to hear, but but just one section from them. It's written, it's it's printed in Gothic type, so it makes it a bit difficult for me to interpret, so I may stumble. But, he says, to the intent that all superstition and hypocrisy um, crept into divers men's hearts may banish away. They shall not set forth... Or extol any images, relics or miracles, nor any superstitions as lucre, or to allure the people by any enticements to pilgrimages, or any saint or image. So that was the beginning of the Reformation, the the, uh, elimination of the cult of the saints, which was so important in medieval England as in, all other medi- uh, as in all other countries. Those injunctions went out. There was some attempt to enforce them, but it wasn't whole scale. 1548, Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury, produced an order of the communion, the first communion service in English. And then in 1549, this first prayer book. It was important for Cranmer to do two things. First of all, to get out a prayer book quickly, so that the ideas that were in the injunctions and which were accepted Protestant ideas <coughs> were, uh, kind, of, kind of came into common circulation. The other thing, and the the thing that he was extraordinarily good at having survived almost miraculously the last years of Henry VIII's reign was only to do what was capable of being done. He would have been able to produce a prayer book much more similar to the ones that we recognise now but he felt that opinion would have been so strongly against it that he didn't dare to do that. This, is, this, is, this, this contains gross simplifications, this lecture, um, but it gives you an idea. So what had changed? Well, <coughs> all services before were in Latin. They were said by the priest. The priest wasn't all that bothered whether there was a congregation or not.
1: Um,
0: the congregation really didn't participate in the mass which was the most common service. Um, they were allowed to take communion infrequently, but only the bread. But the change was not as thoroughgoing as many Protestants wanted. Uh, vestments were kept, manual acts, which I'll talk about later on, uh, around the altar were kept. And the words that were used when communion in both kinds was distributed was the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life. And some Protestants weren't happy with that because they thought that that was still um, consonant with Roman Catholic ideas about what was happening uh, when a Holy Communion was celebrated. The other big change was to the burial service. A huge part of medieval life Went around burial. Burial was a time for processions, it was a time for masses for the dead, for praying for the dead, and all that was done away with. Um, Cranwell was still criticised for one or two elements of the burial service which were removed in 1552. The reaction to this in some places was absolute outrage. And in East Anglia, and in Devon, the countryside (coughs) revolted. It was a very difficult time because the regime was not secure. There were lots of people with lots of views about what the future held for England. And Mary was around. Mary had a very popular following as the oldest child of Henry VIII. So no one quite knew what to do about this, but the response was, as we're seeing in Syria at the moment, to put down any rebellion in the strongest possible terms. Before we go on to anything else, there are two things. First of all, on the table, you will find as you leave, and if you're interested, This rather tasteful violet sheet. What I've done on this violet sheet is to give you a translation of the Roman Catholic Missal that was used most in England, the Sarum Missal. And what I've put on it is just a very small part of the communion service. Have a look at this and you'll see how different it is from the sort of services that we experience now. And what a big change things were. And the second thing is that as soon as this new prayer book came out, um, people with imagination started composing music for it. And what we're going to do is we're just going to listen to the Nunc Dimittis from, from the service of evening prayer, set to very simple music by John Murbeck in 1550. And you can follow it as we go I'm going to start at the beginning Quite simple, and in marked contrast to some of the very elaborate settings of the mass um, in the medieval tradition that preceded that time. Cranmer was very keen, and he said one, one syllable to a note. Nothing more complicated than that. And that was what Merbeck did. Just going to have a quick look at the rebellion in Devon, um, because we have some interesting information about that. The people of Devon and Cornwall um, rose up almost spontaneously and they encamped around Exeter. Exeter uh, was under siege and um, so the camping and the camping happened also in East Anglia, but but the camping In Devon was was a a real issue Exeter was a was a a loyal city um, and um, troops were dispatched from London under Lord Russell and to all intents and purposes these um, country people had no chance about uh, against the mercenaries who came down from London and it's estimated (coughs) that something like 4,000 people were killed Behind all this, there was a grievance. Grievance against the gentry who imposed upon uh, ordinary people. Grievance against the crown that had recently introduced <coughs> a tax on two things that were critical to the economy of the Southwest and indeed to East Anglia sheep and cloth. But there was clearly outrage at the way in which what was regarded as the right kind of religion had been destroyed. Um, Much of the finances of a medieval parish related to church flocks of sheep and to church ales, uh, which were held once or twice a year and raised enough money to keep the the church going for the rest of the time. They were all outlawed. Not only that, but the shrines were taken down, the, the, the more elaborate vestments were removed, uh, there were no processions, none of the traditions that had been, been there for a long time, none of them were retained. We know all this through a really interesting book by Eamon Duffy, who is a Roman Catholic scholar, called The Voices of Morbar. And what he's done is he's taken the accounts, which exist in extremely detailed form from that time, and he's analysed them, and he's discovered some quite interesting things. They had to pay four shillings and four pence, which was a lot of money in those times, for a new prayer book. They had to, they had no choice. What... What is very interesting is though that in these parish accounts they paid six and eightpence to each of five young men, and they paid for them to take arms. Till recently it was thought that they were going to join the king's army, but it seems quite clear that actually they were going to join the rebels. And so for this information to be written down in the church accounts shows how important church accounts are, even more important than protecting everybody's skin apparently. As a result of those big payments, five payments at six and eight and a couple of shillings for arms the parish became seriously overdrawn. So what they did was, the following Sunday, the kind of church warden stood at the door and said, okay, that's a groat each to the nine richest people in the parish. And then they were solvent again.
1: <laughs>
0: Out of the 4,000 who were killed, it looks as though three from this parish died, because only two are ever mentioned again in the parish records. Not only that, they'd taken this awful book with them and probably had burnt it. So the parish had to fork out another four and four <laughs> for a new prayer book. And they became over, and so the church wall, and so exactly the same happened again. So, Cranmer had three years then to reflect on the 1549 prayer book. Interestingly, he took, he took counsel from some of the, the leading reformers on the continent <coughs> to see what they thought. They weren't very happy. People like Martin Buser, who actually came over to England, Peter Martyr, who also um, worked in Cambridge, I think, Um, they gave him some very clear ideas as as to how um, books of this kind were developing on the continent. He also had a great deal of help from his strongest opponent, the Bishop of Winchester, Stephen Gardiner, who spent much of Edward VI's reign in prison, wrote a scathing and sarcastic and ironic take on the prayer book. And various people answered him, but Cranmer kind of took this sarcasm on board. So wherever Gardner had been sarcastic to him, he made sure that the new service book was bulletproof. So, so Stephen Gardner had a really significant impact on the book of 1552 the differences between the two were that pretty much all the remaining ritual in the service was abolished and if you remember the previous words of distribution here is what is said now take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for thee and feed on him in thy heart by faith with thanksgiving there is no possible room for any interpretation that what is being given and received is other than bread and wine. However, the words before that suggest that in a spiritual way these represent the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. There were changes too to the burial service and morning and evening prayer and the book ended up being far more verbal than visual the services became far more verbal and, and visual and and we have a book which is a book of words a huge number of words and that's what the Church of England has lived with since Edward died within months of the new prayer book being imposed and everything changed as I have said the prayer book was banned and everything was reinstated that had been in the medieval Catholic-Latin liturgy. Remarkably, in a place like Morbarth, some of the destroyed images magicked back to life. Some of the vestments returned from parishioners' houses, and a lot of things were put back together again that seemed to have gone forever. So we move on to another prayer book. It's so exciting, isn't it? <laughs> prayer book after prayer book. Elizabeth came to the throne after Mary died, unusually early, at, in, in 1558. Elizabeth, who was the daughter, you'll remember, of Anne Boleyn, was brought up as a Protestant. Um, and she was surrounded by Protestant advisers and counsellors but her personality was a really interesting one. Um, She was clearly going to have and be the ruler of a country which was going to be Protestant. (coughs) And Cranmer, of course, was dead. He'd been burnt at the stake. Um, But those who were in Cranmer's mold thought, good, a Protestant queen Let's get on. Let's do the things that Cranmer might have done in his third prayer book. Let's just do away with anything that could possibly be interpreted as having anything to do with the old traditions or with with what we regard as heretical understandings of uh, what's going on, particularly in the communion service. They were disappointed. Elizabeth didn't pretend to the theology of her father, but she was equally as stubborn and determined. And she said, OK, well, let's see, what are the changes that you're planning to make? And all these changes to the 1552 prayer book came in. And she said, no, you can't do any of those, or virtually none of them. And so the prayer book of 1559 is not identical to, but very, very similar to the prayer book of 1552. But at the Queen's insistence, look at what's done to the words of distribution. We have the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul from everlasting life, from the 1549 book, and take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for thee, and feed on him in thy heart, by faith, with thanksgiving, from the 1552 book kind of splicing two things which are not exactly identical together. And some of the issues within Anglicanism ever since stem from this, that many elements of the 1559 Prayer Book could be taken either way. Which you might think is a good thing for a developing Anglican Church, but in those days nobody was happy about it. Um, And you can see, there I've put, the Catholics were unhappy, I mean, they were suppressed. They had nothing uh, for the whole of Elizabeth's reign. From time to time, they were more or less persecuted. But the fines for being a Catholic, for not going to an Anglican Church, were severe. And so were the Evangelicals, particularly sects like the Anabaptists, right at the far end of the spectrum. (coughs) They too were persecuted. This is a little kind of schematic diagram of what went around the Book of Common Prayer in Elizabeth's time. First of all, the act of supremacy. Henry VIII was very keen on his act of supremacy. We will come back to that. The act of uniformity imposing the Book of Common Prayer throughout the land. Injunctions, visitations, and canons. These were the day-to-day way in which the prayer book And using the prayer book was enforced. Um, I've got some injunctions here from um, the time of Queen Elizabeth. Um, Those doing the visitation, usually the bishop, were required to find out whether there is, whether any by preaching, writing, word or deed, do maintain the usurped power of the Bishop of Rome. To you and me, that's the Pope. Mm-hmm. Whether any preach, declare or speak anything in derogation of the Book of Common Prayer, or anything therein contain- contained, or any part thereof. And he goes on for page after page. There's virtually nowhere to hide if you're you know, just a humble cleric of some kind. Canons were the rules of the church that the clergy had to abide by. Then there were the 39 Articles. You could spend a whole evening (coughs) looking at the Articles. They're a fascinating document. Until until very recently, the um, clergy of the Church of England were required to subscribe in public to the 39 Articles. They didn't stay identical. They changed, but by 1662, they they were definitive. Then there was the Psalter. The book of Psalms, which was always attached to the prayer book. Those were the Psalms in the translation from the Great Bible, which was done by Miles Coverdale. And then there were the books of homilies. I'll read you something from a homily. The homilies were there because there was concern about the um, lack of learning of the clergy. So they were told that if they weren't clever enough to write their own sermons, here are your sermons for you they do go on and on and on and people did recognize that they've been split into kind of one third homilies and quarter homilies but they still go on and on (laughs) so that's the kind of that's how the book of common prayer in the centre of all that was enforced here we are, look, we're covering almost hundred years in one slide. <laughs> the, first, the first thing, though, is the homily against rebellion. Uh, Elizabeth was not terribly secure on her throne. It was only 1588 was the time of the Spanish Armada, and in 1570 there had been quite a lot of rebellious activity. And so the last of the homilies, Homily 21, the Homily Against Rebellion, was, was produced in that year. Um, I'm going to read you a little bit of that later on, but it is you can't be in any doubt about the message. And the message is the one that we'll talk about later on in relation to that. Sixteen oh three. King James the Sixth and the First. Two in one. And the following year, um, James, who even on his way down from Scotland to London, had been pestered by people giving him petitions about how the prayer book was to be made properly Protestant, decided that he would would be a good king. Uh, He was the first king or queen for many years who hadn't actually changed the religion of the country, so he was off to one good start. But he called together the Hampton Court Conference, and uh, there were two uh, two results of that. One was a new prayer book, but it was hardly changed at all. Nobody could agree on the changes or the direction that the changes should go in, whether they should go up or down. And so, in the end, uh, out came the same prayer book, basically. Um, And then there was the authorised version of the Bible, which for the next seven years was being written. And since you all know about the um, King James Version, because of its 400th anniversary last year, I'm not going to say any more about that. The other thing, which you might think is of only um, limited interest, was another set of canons for the clergy. Well, the interesting thing about this is apparently in the 1960s, clergy were still having to conform to the 1604 cannons, at least in theory. 1605, the gunpowder plot. We know it as Guy Fawkes Night, but there's no doubt that for a couple of hundred years the gunpowder plot played a part far larger in the public and in the state's imagination than we can probably imagine. The attempt to blow up not just the king, but everyone in the government was seen as such an affront to any kind of decent behaviour that it became to be memorialized. Things were changing too in the church from James, James's time onwards. Charles came to the throne in 1625, um, in many ways an enlightened monarch. Uh, he built up a huge collection of paintings, for example, um, but uh, he was as rigid as many of his predecessors had been. He had a very high view of his own authority. During his time, Archbishop Lord, who had the benefit of being born in Reading, <laughs> made a lot of changes and and what how you could typify them was, it was a kind of creeping upwards. Um, creeping up the candle and so churches were reorganised and new church furniture was installed and vestments started to creep back in and um, a lot of things were done which was particularly concerning to people who took themselves to be true Protestants 1637 someone made the decision that the Scots should have their own prayer book. Interestingly, it was based on the 1549 book, not on the 1552 or the 1559 or the 1604. And this was imposed on the Scots, and they hated it. You may remember the the story of someone getting up to preach in the cathedral in Edinburgh, and a lady whose name I forget threw a footstool at him, and anarchy broke loose, and that was one of the direct Um, one of the direct results of all of that was the Civil War. Well, that was one of the things that led up to the Civil War, which kind of started in earnest in 1642. As I said already, in 1645, Parliament, uh, and the King was in no position to do anything about it, because if he wasn't under arrest then, he was soon, Um, Parliament decided that the Book of Common Prayer should be banned again. They introduced their own service book, um, which was quite different, much more similar, much much more similar to the European service books, much sketchier, much less definitive, giving much more option for the people taking the services to extemporise, both in preaching (coughs) and in prayer particularly. Extemporary prayer, a great thing that distinguished what they would describe as real Protestants from those Church of English Church of England people who did everything by the book the Commonwealth period was very depressing for Anglicans. first of all a lot of Anglican ministers, people who wouldn't subscribe to the solemn oath and covenant which which um, was a almost a Republican document, uh, were expelled from their churches. A lot of them, perhaps 3,000, were expelled. Because the Book of Common Prayer was banned, nobody was allowed to use it. Some people did in private chapels. And this is John Evelyn writing about Christmas Day in 1557. I went to London with my wife to celebrate Christmas Day. Mr. Gunning was giving us the Holy Sacrament and the chapel of the Countess of Essex was surrounded by soldiers, and all the communicants and assembly surprised and kept prisoners by them. In the afternoon came Colonel Wally, Gough, and others from Whitehall to examine us, one by one. When I came before them, they took my name and abode, examined me why, contrary to the ordinance made, that none should any longer observe the superstitious time of the Nativity, I durst offend and particularly be at common prayers which they told me was but the mass in English and particularly pray for Charles Stuart for which we had no scripture I said then that we did pray we did not pray for Charles Stuart but for all Christian kings princes and governors you'll recognise those words perhaps they replied in so doing we prayed for the king of spain who was their enemy and a papist, with other frivolous and ensnaring questions and much threatening. And finding no color to detain me, they dismissed me with much pity of my ignorance. Then he goes home. (laughs) Blessed be God, he ends up. (laughs) Uh, So not a good good time to be an Anglican, really. On the pink sheet, you'll get the full extract extract of that and and, uh, something else which we're coming to in a moment. Everybody got sick of the Commonwealth, and as you know, they invited Charles II to come back. Before he did, he issued the Declaration of Breda, which is really interesting a liberty to tender consciences and that no man shall be disquieted or called in question for differences of opinion in matters of religion which do not disturb the peace of the kingdom. This is excellent English toleration at its best, isn't it? That's lovely, and so everybody would have welcomed him with that promise, and he was restored. Meanwhile, in Finchamstead, you may recognize this. Uh, this is a photograph of part of the board in the church which lists <coughs> the rectors of the parish. 1592, Samuel Marsh. From 1645 to 1660, there was no rector. Samuel Marsh apparently was not willing to sign up to the solemn oath and covenant. In 1956, the parishioners of St. James Finchamstead put on a pageant based on a book written at the end of the 19th century called The Chronicles of Finchamstead. And one of the elements of that was what happened to Samuel Marsh. Now, these are not the words of history, but the words of the imagination. And we have... Uh, two very reputable current members of the St. James Congregation, Richard and Morris, who are going to impersonate, on the one hand, the rector, and on the other hand, uh, the the roundhead captain who comes to check him out. So, if you wouldn't mind coming forward. And um, we have a 17th century microphone for you. So, just stand over there let just pass the microphone to one another as you go. Samuel Marsh, it has been reported to the Lords Commissioner of Parliament that you have refused to sign the solemn league and covenant lately con- concluded and agreed upon for this realm of England.
2: Not agreed by me, young man, nor, <laughs> nor by many like me. Do you think I will break faith with the things that I have loved and served for more than 50 years, or abandon the prayer book, which day by day I have used in yon little church for more than half a century, or cease to teach my little flock? Nay, sir, I will never betray my trust. Do what you will. But I remain faithful to the church which I serve, and the God whom I worship.
0: Very well then, son Marsh. Thou art henceforth no longer rector of this parish. By the authority vested in me, I deprive thee of all thy rights and appur- appurtenance. Henceforth, thy church shall be locked against thee, and thou and thy wife and children are expelled from here never to return.
2: Too late. No man can harm me now, for I am at the end of my earthly journey. I tell thee that the days will come when the men and women of England shall be free to worship as they will. The days will come when this old church shall be unlocked, and be not locked again forever, Night or day, (laughs) the days will come when you shall see once more a king upon the throne of England. Long may he reign. Sir, I bid you farewell. A contumacious stubborn old fool. (laughs)
0: Interesting is there was no rector, so there was no Puritan minister put in this place during the Commonwealth years. And interestingly, uh, Thomas Bright was appointed just a couple of months after Charles came back and, and before the introduction of the 1662 prayer book. As soon as Charles got back, he reappointed the bishops who'd who'd obviously been uh, done away with, just like the um, non-consenting ministers. (coughs) And he called a conference. And just like like James, he was going to be a good king. He'd given the Declaration of Breda, he'd reinforced it by a declaration once he was on English soil, called the Declaration of Whitehall in much the same terms. And he thought, well, how can we get this sorted out? Um, nobody's terribly comfortable with the prayer book um, so what can we do about it and so he thought well a good way let's get 12 bishops and let's get 12 of the most learned Puritan divines sit them in a room for three months and then we'll do what they they agree unfortunately they didn't agree and I have to say they didn't agree because the bishops had set out not to agree with anything. They had decided that they were having none of this Puritan nonsense. They'd had enough of Puritans. (coughs) The prayer book had served bishops before, and so the prayer book will stay as it is. Indeed, the prayer book needs to be improved in the opposite direction. The Savoy Conference was a complete failure. The only thing that the two sides agreed on was that the extracts from the Bible in the prayer book should be from the authorised version, the King James Bible, not from um, the Bible that was being used uh, previously. But note something else, the Corporation Act. In spite of the King's tolerance, apparently, Parliament passed a law which said that uh, no one Who didn't make the. um, uh, No one who didn't um, take communion in the Church of England could be a member of any corporation, that is, any public body. 1662, a new prayer book, we'll come back to that in a moment, enforced by the Act of Uniformity. But this Act of Uniformity uh, was particularly difficult for Puritans because they were required to swear two oaths. The first was of loyalty to the King and to the use of the Book of Common Prayer. The second was to say that um, the solemn oath and covenant was not only null and void now, but always had been null and void. And you can appreciate that having sworn an oath, to be required to swear another oath that the previous oath, wasn't worth the paper it was written on would be a difficult thing for people of principle to do. Things actually got worse than the Corporation Act and the Act of Uniformity and a couple of years later came along the Conventicle Act. Outside the Church of England no one could gather together in numbers greater than five without risking being imprisoned. And then the Five Mile Act. No former minister could come within five miles of any town or any place where he had ministered in the past. So much for the word of a king. So here we are. We've got another schematic. It's a bit plain, I'm afraid. But all, what you can see is, ranged around the Book of Common Prayer, many of the same things. The act, the act of Supremacy was not now as important as it had been. Nobody was denying that the King was the King and that the Pope had no power. Um, Roman Catholics were hardly tolerated, but they weren't seen as a threat to the religious settlement. Corporation Act, Act of Uniformity, Conventicles Act, Five Mile Act, or imposing the Book of Common Prayer, along with more visitations and the use of the canons, the Thirty-nine Articles, inclusion of the Psalter. By then, a lot of people had come up with um, rhyming versions of the Psalms, which were put into the Metrical Psalter. And the P- Book of Homilies is, is rather faint because it had rather fall, they'd rather fallen out of use by then. So the book itself. We've reached our starting point, really, haven't we? <laughs> as I said, essentially the same as 1552, 1559, but the use of the book was different. There was much more ritual now. It was ritual which would have horrified Cranmer. Um, and, um, but the other big change was that the bishops were really part of the establishment. The bishops were no, no longer crusading for any significant change at all. The prayer book was a test of conformity, and. I think we could say it's the beginning of Anglicanism as we know it and certainly a drawing back from the aims of 1552 and you may have seen people referring to the question as to whether the Church of England is a Protestant church or a reformed Catholic church and we won't be voting on that (laughs) but it's entirely up to you which you think just for one moment to go back to the metrical psalter if you're interested in these kind of things um, I've done a handout which gives Psalm 100 all people that on earth do dwell sing to the Lord with cheerful voice that's from the first metrical psalter and I've given you variants from other psalters Um, you'll think that I'm a psalms freak if I say any more about uh, the psalms in this context but it's quite interesting um, the different ways in which they were they were translated and here we are the revenge of the bishops. In that conference, their concerns were ignored. Uh, ritual, was, um, ritual was imposed. Uh, ritual, uh, I mean, when I say ritual, you may be surprised by what I mean by that and what the Puritans meant by that. But, for example, uh, using the sign of the cross in baptism, which we might take to be uh, common usage Um, also um, um, the kneeling to receive communion was offensive to the Puritans I can't go into the reasons they had excellent reasons for all these things and all their (coughs) reasons principally would have been based upon scripture upon the Bible so you mustn't think that I am criticising the the people who effectively uh, lost lost their livelihood, lost their vocation. One other thing was imposed by the Act of Uniformity and that was that all ministers in the Church of England had to be had to have been ordained by a bishop and many of the ministers prior to that during the Commonwealth period hadn't been and again for many of them exposing themselves to a second ordination just wasn't acceptable because it meant their first ordination was valueless. Um, very difficult indeed. If you're keen on the act of uniformity and to see what these odes are that people had to swear, uh, there is a, yet another handout for you to take away. But it's quite interesting. The result of the act of uniformity was what's known as the Great Ejectment. Huge numbers of ministers, somewhere between one and 2,000, being removed From their posts. I thought you might like to hear what Samuel Pepys had to say about one of those ministers who clearly he held in high regard. This is the last Sunday before the Act came into force, and he went to hear Dr. Bates at St. Dunstan's. He went to hear him in the morning, getting up before dawn so that he would get a good place. He went then in the evening too. Dr. Bates pursued his text again very well and only at the conclusion told us after this manner, I do believe that many of you do expect that I should say something to you in reference to the time, this being the last time that possibly I may appear here. You know it is not my manner to speak anything in the pulpit that is extraneous to my text and business. Yet this I shall say, that it is not my opinion, faction or humour that keeps me from complying with what is required of me, but something which after much prayer, discourse and study yet remains unsatisfied and commands me herein. Wherefore, if it is my unhappiness not to receive such an illumination as should direct me to do otherwise, I know no reason why men should not pardon me in this world and I'm confident that God will pardon me for it in the next. And so he concluded, I hear most of the presbyters took their leave today and the city is much dissatisfied with it. For those ministers, life became extremely hard. They couldn't meet with their congregations in safety or in the open. In the history of the Broad Street Chapel in Reading, I read this. One of the the, um, ejected ministers goes under the happy name of Mr. Juice. He was squeezed till the pips squeaked. (laughs) Mr. Juice and another ejected minister were hidden by a godly woman, Mrs. Thorne, the wife of a tanner in Mill Lane, in a bark rick from which Mr. Juice crept. And when the scouts were not in the way, he preached to his afflicted people, hastening, when the psalmless service was concluded, back to his place of concealment, where that holy ministering woman supplied the brethren in tribulation with food. Not much fun. Happily, 350 years later, there was a great celebration in Westminster Abbey when the United Reformed Church, representing the heirs of many of those ministers, um, came together with the Church of England and they all said good things about one another, uh, which was very happy. And as you'll know, in many places, uh, people from um, dissenting traditions and their Anglican uh, friends get on extremely well together. We're going to have a little more music now, while you look at that lovely picture, um, or the next one. And what we're going to hear is, we're going to hear a little piece of music by Purcell. And um, this was written for a text in the Book of Common Prayer, the Jubilate, and um, which is sung, um, which is sung at morning prayer. As one of the canticles. So assuming that I've got this right, I have to check because I think, yes I've, I've missed out a couple of pieces of music but that may be no bad thing because um, you don't want me to keep you too much longer. <coughs> now we're going to cover the 350 years um, at a gallop. 1688 to 89, the glorious revolution and there was a proper act of toleration at that time, although it didn't allow um, (coughs) either dissenters or the Catholics to hold public office. During the 18th and 19th centuries there were continuing tensions between high and low church parties. Every now and then someone came up with an idea for changing the prayer book, but they never got um, very far. So we, we've reached 1928 already and in 1928 there was a real attempt to, to bring the prayer book up to date, to simplify some things that were considered to be too uh, worthy. Uh, too wordy. Um, but although the church wanted to do it, Parliament didn't. And uh, to describe it as a fiasco is very accurate and, and church and state relationships didn't recover probably until after the Second World War as a result of that. Then from 1965 to 1980, when 65 was the year in which the church did get control over its own services. Um, And so series one, series two, and series three, which many of you will remember with affection came in, followed by the alternative services book in uh, 1980. And finally, in 2000, by Common Worship. When common worship was introduced, it was introduced very clearly alongside the Book of Common Prayer and so didn't supplant it. So now we've touched on a lot of the content of this, so this will be much quicker the state and the Book of Common Prayer. But what I've said there is that in Tudor times, the sovereign really was the state. What the sovereign said went. And uh, you'll probably know, Henry VIII, in the Act of Supremacy of 1534, was described as the only supreme head in earth of the Church of England. In other words, the Pope ain't. And 1559, they had to change the words because there was a big debate, big, big debate, about whether a woman could be the head of the church. No, she couldn't, but she could be the only supreme governor of this realm. And to make it absolutely clear what that meant, as well in all spiritual and ecclesiastical things, uh, as, and, or causes, as temporal. In other words, she doesn't, wasn't just queen, but she was governor of the Church of England, and she behaved as though she was head of the Church of England. But the words, just about satisfied, just about most people. By Charles the first time, all this had tended to collapse and the Civil War was an example of the Parliament setting itself up against this idea of kingship. And from then on, kings were tolerated. But as we've seen in Charles II's case, the king could say what he liked, but if Parliament didn't enact (coughs) it, it didn't go anywhere at all. But we do have this idea still of, of and indeed the Queen still is the, the Supreme Governor of the Church of England so the idea has remained but the power has gone in terms of the Book of Common Prayer and the state in terms of what's built into the services um, that we pray for the Queen regularly in Book of Common Prayer services um, the Acts of Uniformity imposed the Book of Common Prayer and the Oaths the homilies um, Uh, built up that. I'm going to skip the extract from the homilies I was going to read you. It's here if you're very keen to read it afterwards. But it's very, very strong stuff. Read from the pulpit about how, how the Queen as she then was in 1571 is God's representative here on earth. And rebellion against the Queen is rebellion against God. That's a bit briefer than the homily. (laughs) The Articles of Religion, uh, 42 for Time, then 39. And if you want to see what they are, just look in the back of most prayer books. The Injunctions, the Visitations, the Canons. And then there are the State Services. In 1662, there were four State Services. The date on which Charles I had been executed... And the Puritans were horrified about this. They said, you've introduced a new saint, Saint Charles I. We can't bear it. The restoration of King Charles II, and they said, well, you've introduced another, another Charles, another Saint Charles. We can't bear that either. The service for uh, November the 5th, remembering this um, fortunately avoided atrocity, this is from a prayer book of 1734, which is down here. And you can see here that there's this special service on the right, and here is a picture, the eye of heaven, seeing the conspirators and foiling their plot. If you read these services, the language, again, is extraordinarily strong uh, and something that we would think was not at all correct nowadays. And then there was an accession service, which is the only one that has retained the date uh, of the the sovereign's accession. These services remained until 1858, at which time uh, Victorian sensibilities realised that all of this was somewhat over the top, and um, they were abolished. Here's a little extract. Um, it ought to have some music to go with it because it's, it's not very easy to read, but I've, I've, highlighted, I've highlighted this. This is someone's take about, about what the liturgy in the prayer book is all about. It's about order. It's about coercive collectivity. In other words, it's about forcing everybody to do something, and it's therefore about power. You may or you may not agree with that, but I thought it was interesting. So, we're now going to move on to the book and its impact. And I've got several short sections on this. The first, if we think about the book itself, one thing is that it's not like any other similar prayer book anywhere in the world except for those places that have um, adopted or adapted the Book of Common Prayer itself. One thing that is really interesting, I think, is that in medieval times, the service was the mass, the regular service was the mass, as I described right at the beginning. Within a few years of the first prayer book, at the Church of England, main services were morning prayer and evening prayer. This would have absolutely horrified Cranmer. Cranmer was so keen on the sacraments, that one of the main reasons for his recantations before his final execution was that he couldn't bear to be separated from taking the communion, taking the Mass. So he didn't set up the prayer book to be like that, but that's the way it worked out. Partly perhaps because, although it was in English, the Holy Communion service was a bit daunting for normal people. They were told over and over again how sinful they were and how they had to only come to communion when they were almost sinless which as we know for most of us is almost impossible (coughs) this book was much more involving for the congregation you might not think so if you come to a service of morning or evening prayer but it was much more involving for the congregation because they could understand it which they couldn't the Latin Um, the book is capable as we already said of diverse interpretation in a way it's a text for performance a lot of the battles were well, not about the words of the service, but about the words that went around and the words of what are called the rubrics, that said how things were to be done, when the priest had to stand, and, and those kind of things. That's where a lot of the controversy was. But throughout it all, there is a remarkable consistency of style. It still bears the mark of Cranmer. Very much the mark of Cranmer. Um, the Psalms, still bear the mark of Coverdale, they are his work. What's interesting, in the 1662 revision, where a few of the collects, which are perhaps the the most significant element of Cranmer's work, were changed, extended, made more appropriate, the work of John Cousins, one of the bishops at that time, it's kind of integrated in, in a seamless way. Sometimes it's difficult to know who wrote which one. And overall, the book defines Anglicanism as you will recall from last year, the uh, Book of Common Prayer, the, the authorised version of the Bible, is kind of inherent in, in our literature. But so too is the Book of Common Prayer, because it was, it was the standard thing to do. For writers, it was taken as just part of normal life. They didn't emphasise it, but they didn't play it down either. And some, partly that's, that's simply because this has gone on for so long. I don't mean this. I mean the Book of Prayer. <laughs> though, though you might say that's very apt. Um, but it's recognized. You know, there are, there are, there are words here. Here, here, is, here is the service of holy matrimony. Uh, the reasons for getting married. It was ordained for the mutual society help and comfort that the one ought to have of the other, both in prosperity and adversity. And the words of the vows, which I'm not even going to repeat because you all know them. They were new things, but that idea about one of the reasons for getting married was so that you could look after one another, was not in the medieval church. That was to avoid fornication and to have children. Cranmer was married, you see. Which... um, Henry VIII didn't like, and so, so the book is kind of a subtext in, in much of English literature. Um, here's a little kind of riddle from Jane Austen, from Emma. Mr. Knightley, you always call me Mr. Knightley, and from habit is not so much a formal sound, and yet it is formal. I want you to call me something else, but I don't know what. I remember once calling you George in one of my amiable fits about ten years ago. I did this because I thought it would offend you, but as you made no objection, I never did it again.
1: (laughs) Can you not call
0: me George now? Impossible. I never can call you anything but Mr. Knightley. I will not promise even to equal the elegant terseness of Mrs. Elton by calling you Mr. K. But I will promise, she added presently, laughing and blushing, I will promise to call you once by your Christian name. I do not say when, but perhaps you may guess where, in the building in which N takes M for better, for worse. (laughs) And of course, another example, Anthony Trollope, the Barchester novels, are all about the church, all about the use of the Book of Common Prayer. Dickens is, as he often is, quite sarcastic about established religion. But look where you like to, and you may well come across strands of it, which we probably wouldn't notice even. And then music. As I mentioned earlier, um, um, Cranmer liked music, but not all the reformers did. They thought it was ungodly. Fortunately, they didn't win the day. um, And so we've heard some music from the 1549 Book of Common Prayer, uh, 1552, there's less reference to parts of the service being sung there, the metrical psalters, and in 1597, the harmonised chants, which if you've been to choral, even song recently, you will recognise. It's what's sung to the canticles and the psalms. And from, from Talus and Byrd onwards, who had a monopoly of u- music in Elizabeth's time, there, uh, there has been a huge and rich heritage of Anglican choral music, not least for state occasions like the coronation, and had we a little more time I would have played you a stirring uh, Te Deum by Handel. but we don't there it is, it was to celebrate the Treaty of Utrecht and then finally the Book of Common Prayer worldwide, introduced again amidst tremendous controversy to Ireland, which was a Catholic country in 1551 we've heard about Scotland through colonisation, first and um, distinctively in the United States, and the Episcopal Church still has a Book of Common Prayer, though they no longer pray for our King or Queen. And the British Empire, it was taken as part of the baggage of the <coughs> Empire. Nobody questioned it. This, this is the book. This is the, this is the proper way. This is it. Although later on, people did try to kind of enculturate it, a term that we heard last week from the bishop. Uh, There were missionaries who went out to other territories and took with them the Book of Common Prayer and there was translation into many other languages. And in most of those cases there was very little um, radical revision until the late 20th century. So what now? Well, now the book has moved from being normative to being optional sitting alongside almost anything because almost anything can come out of common worship. This is one of about six volumes of common worship. The services that we use here, the red book that's used at St. Mary and St. John's are out of common worship and you'll know if you've studied them that there are loads and loads of variants. So the idea of a uniform service just doesn't exist in the Church of England anymore. And some of the reasons for that i, I, I put up there. But, but things were changing in the 20th century. In particular, um, high church people particularly wanted to get back the idea of the Holy Communion service being at the centre of Christian life. So the parish communion movement took place. In the Roman Catholic Church there was the liturgical movement which started in a way by providing a variety of Eucharistic prayers. Um, It was felt that morning and evening prayer weren't sufficiently congregationally participative and something else needed to be done and I think if you know the two types of service you'll recognize that there is much more participation in common worship services from members of the congregation and from the congregation as a whole. There was the Church of South India which which, um, which used its own liturgy from 1947 onwards, and because it was a combination of various churches, uh, it, it, it was very flexible um, in the way that it approached that. Um, and, and of course there are language changes. It sounds very odd to be saying thee and thou nowadays, very odd indeed outside of church. Um, the idea, we started off, didn't we? Dearly beloved, and what's the next word? Brethren. Well, it meant brothers and sisters. They just didn't bother to put in the ancestors bit. But man meant people. And of course it's an idea which is not terribly acceptable nowadays. Um, people who've grown up outside the church just don't get it. They don't understand it. And why would they when man means all sorts of other things? So here we are. Now, what's going to happen in the next hundred years? Well, you may well ask. I've got no idea at all. <laughs> Absolutely no idea, but, but there's no doubt that the trend towards um, uh, family resemblance and multiplicity of services is most likely to continue. Um, BCP remains an option, and will remain an option, as long as there's a requirement for it. In 1979, before the alternative services book was introduced, there was a petition interestingly enough, in the Daily Telegraph, by 600 distinguished people, including uh, well-known atheists and agnostics, um, Iris Murdoch among them. We are concerned for the wellsprings of expressive power in the authorised version of the Bible and the Book of Common Prayer, the great originals of English life and language, informing piety and inspiring justice, New and necessary initiatives must not smudge or obliterate the deep grooves cut by the Lord's Prayer, the collects and the canticles, by the historic Eucharist and all the powerful words which mark birth, marriage and death. We only ask that the traditional text be restored to a central and regular place in the mainstream of worship, to which the simple answer is go to church and people will keep the services you want. Um, I think... All that fell on quite deaf ears because people wanted to have services that were appropriate to our time and not something which comes even with this wonderful heritage and legacy from 350 years ago. <coughs> it is likely to be preserved as long as there are cathedral choirs within the cathedrals where, where the pattern of daily services is almost invariably, according to the Book of Common Prayer and using actively the tradition um, of choral writing that I've talked about. But not only that, whatever I've said about common worship is not to criticise it, it is a clear, very clear descendant of the Book of Common Prayer. So the Book of Common Prayer lives on, for example, in the shape of a service of the word, as it's described in common worship, which which just takes elements of morning and evening prayer and presents them in a tabular format. Um, And in the Daily Office, this is is a book for personal devotions. It's almost identical in structure with uh, the Book of Common Prayer morning and evening prayer services, but modified so that people can read it on their own or in small groups. So, summary and conclusions. Well, I wrote all this out, I'm not sure why I wrote <coughs> this out, but 1549-16, we talked about the monarch being being the state, and so the Book of Common Prayer, as I had it on those diagrams, was at the centre of the, the Church of England, and at the centre of the state, part of the apparatus of secular and religious power. 1660-1688, to 1688, um, the establishment took over as the powerhouse from, from um, the king. But, as you saw, the Book of Common Prayer was still enforced and an important part of secular policy. And then, up until 1965, the Book of Common Prayer kin- continued to reflect um, the identity of the Church of, Church of England and, and as a touchstone of Orthodox, orthodoxy, even when it was used in lots of different ways and then from 1965 to now in a way the paths of the monarchy and the prayer book diverge. but possibly more in outward appearance than in reality the Book of Common Prayer, because it's kind of fixed can't adapt itself in the way that the Queen and the Royal Family have almost been forced to do and so perhaps the adaptation of the Book of Common Prayer is in spawning common worship. And I said there that common worship will fit the Church of England if not for the next 350 years, at least for the next three, or possibly five, or perhaps ten. Who knows? Who knows? Who in 300 years will look back and say, if only we had common worship now? Who knows? Times move on, don't they? But here we are. In 2012, both the Queen, I'm sure in a place like Finch and the Book of Common Prayer remain for many people dearly beloved. So, um, slightly over time, but I didn't want you to ask me any questions because I not <laughs> The
1: answer will be
0: I've got no idea.